morning. Privilege to, to share God's word with you today. I'm going to start off with a story, a uh, popular example that I cataloged a while back. Um, but it was 7.51 on January 12, 2007, when Joshua Bell emerged from the Washington, D.C. metro during the middle of the morning rush hour. And by all measures, he looked very average. He looked young, he's Caucasian, loose jeans, long sleeve t-shirt, baseball cap, and he's carrying a small case. And from the small case, he opens it up and he removes the violin. He places some dollar bills into the violin case um, as seed money to encourage tips and donations. And for the next 45 minutes, he plays multiple songs from Bach, from Mozart, as thousands of people stroll by, hardly taking notice. If they saw him, they might have recognized him. For the world-renowned violinist, he was. And perhaps even noticed the violin that he was playing. A rare violin. So rare, I don't even know how to pronounce it. Uh, Stradivarius. <laughs> Worth over $3 million. Just three days earlier, Joshua Bell sold out the Boston Symphony Hall. With nosebleed seats going over $100. And yet in the subway, Bell just earned $32, with only 27 people stopping to give a donation. He went completely unrecognized, right under their noses, hidden in plain sight. And I shared this example uh, because I, I feel like it, it, it is a good illustration of, I confess, how it, I, I approach these introductory verses. I approached them as just routine. He's going to say his things. He's going to introduce himself. He's going to be cordial. He's going to say some nice things. And maybe you're like me, where we have a tendency to read these verses quickly and superficially. We think that they're just a formality. But in these opening verses, in these opening words by Paul to the church in Corinth, we find divinely inspired words coming to us this morning as a gift from God to shed light on the richness of his character, his mercy for us, his love for us, and yet, as Pastor Steve shared earlier, just the beauty and depth of his grace for us as his people. So today, what I want us to see are three things, three things that I think we can learn from Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, to them as not just individuals, but corporately as a church family. Three things that I think we can turn, take away from his heart, from his attitude toward the Corinthians, and how it points them and us to the riches that await us in the person and work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So point number one, the first thing that I want us to see in this verses is Paul's emphasis on the call of the Christian. If you can take a look at verse 1 with me. In verse 1, Paul says, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. Verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if we can skip forward to verse 9, it reads, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
Three separate times in these nine verses, Paul refers to this idea of calling. And it's interesting because as a theologian, Sinclair Ferguson points out that the most frequent one-word description in all of the Bible of the Christian, that description is not that we are loved, it's not that we are protected or that we are cared for, but the most frequent one-word description for the Christian in the scriptures is that we are called. And without a doubt, that is something that Paul wants to hammer home, not just here in these verses, but in all of his writings. You see, Paul, whenever he makes a reference to the call of God, for the Christian to be called by the will of God, what Paul is acknowledging, what he is affirming, and what he is drawing our attention to is this. The sovereign, gracious, and divine act of God in which he initiates divine action. He's the one that does the work. He's the one that calls us to him. To be called by God entails that he saw you, he saw me, and without us doing anything, he initiated and he called us to him. And to be called by God entails that we follow him. Before any action or decision on our own to follow, he called us. In other words, there's divine action before human decision. God makes the first move. He called you and I to him. The question naturally becomes, then what are we called to? What is he calling us to? Take a look at verse 2a with me. It says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. To the church of God in Corinth, to you, to me, to Crossway Community Church, we are called to be sanctified in Christ Jesus, to be saints. We are called to be saints. You see, the root word for sanctified, for saints, it shares the same root word as the word holy. The words all carry the same weight. To those who are called saints, sanctified, are called to be holy. And the heart of that pursuit of that calling means that you and I are set apart. That's the essence of it. To be called means that you and I are set apart from the world. You can engage the world in economy, in foreign affairs, in politics, in culture, in art, in entertainment. But at the end of the day, fundamentally, you and I are called to be set apart. Your motivations, your aspirations, your dreams, your lives are different because in Christ Jesus, you have been called to be saints, to be holy, to be set to decide for a specific purpose. And notice that this is not just an individual call. It's not a call to Austin and just Austin. It's not a call to just the church in Corinth. It's not a call to John and just John. Take a look at verse 2 again. It reads, call to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Paul is very clear. We are called together to be one unit, distinct individuals all collected as one. And together we call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul here wants to hammer home that there's a communal aspect that Paul says, this you can't separate from the call of God. You are called, not just John here and Paul here, not just Chris here and Steve here to be holy there, but we are called together 
as sons and daughters following the Father together, to be set apart together, to be saints together, to be holy together. And what grounds us together? What unites us together? What binds us together? What do we find our commonality in? Not in our hobbies, not in our life stages, not in our politics, not in our personal dispositions and preferences. But you and I, when we are called together, we find our calling, our commonality, our common ground in Jesus Christ. That through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we can have a real relationship with the creator of the universe, the king, and call him father. And you can look at the person sitting next to you, and though you have no blood relationship, you can look at them and call them brother and sister. You and I are called together to look like the father, to bring him glory in all the corners of the earth, to long to bring to our father joy out of our obedience to him. And I wonder if for some of us, we hear that, and it's difficult for us to not only understand, but to apply as modern people, because we see ourselves so much as individuals. You have your dreams. You have your families. You have your aspirations. You have your careers. All centered around what I want and what I create and what I see fit for my life. But Paul is very clear here. You're not just called to be an individual. It's not bad to be an individual, but our identity first and foremost is that we are called to be saints together. Crossway Community Church, together. Set apart together. United by the blood of Christ, together, despite our differences. Despite how much we might get annoyed with each other how much we might get on each other's nerves because our commonality is not found in our disposition but in the cross of Jesus Christ. Take a, look at, take a look back at verse 1 with me. We see that Paul specifically refers to one person in the church and his name is Sosthenes. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. Well, the question for us should be, why is this guy mentioned here? Who is Sosthenes, and why is he the only one that is listed? Well, Sosthenes is mentioned only one other time in the entire scriptures, and it's in Acts chapter 18. And funny enough, in Acts chapter 18, there we get an account of the birth of the Corinthian church. And to make a long story short, what we see in Acts 18 is Sosthenes, he is a ruler of the Jewish synagogue, and his job was to bring Paul in front of the Roman tribunal council and to have him punished. But Sosthenes failed to do that. And so Sosthenes, we find in Acts 18, is beat by his own people. And the question is, okay, that's Acts 18. Why is he mentioned here in 1 Corinthians 1? Well, many commentators believe that between the planting of that church by Paul in Acts 18 and the writing of the letter in 1 Corinthians to the church in Corinth, God had called Sosthenes to be set apart, to be sanctified. He had called them to be a part of the family. Now, imagine with me here, once an enemy of Paul's was trying to get him put in prison, once an enemy of God, once an enemy of the church, now he too is called to be set apart for God. 
Not just that Sosthenes, the ex-synagogue ruler, turned child of God, but that Sosthenes called to be a son of God together with the Paul, with Paul, sorry, the Paul, with Paul and the church in Corinth. And you and I partake in the same call, the same work, to be set apart and sanctified, bound together by the Spirit of God, united forever by the work of the cross. Point number two that I want us to see. The second thing that I think we can glean from Paul's heart and affection for the Corinthians in these opening verses is Paul's ability to discern, to identify, and to celebrate the glimmers of grace. The glimmers of grace in the Corinthian church. Take a look at verses 4 through 7 with me. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let me go through these verses real quickly for us. Paul is giving thanks because they have been given the grace of God found in Christ Jesus. Seems like a good thing. They were enriched. Pretty good, right? They were A+, the best of the best in all speech and knowledge. There's a reason why Paul puts that in there. Because the city of Corinth was just, everyone knew that they valued oratorical abilities in that city. And Paul says, you're the best of the best. You know the most. You can speak the best. And he acknowledges that. The testimony of Christ is confirmed among you. Everyone looks at you. And they can see that Christ is there. They are not lacking in any gift. These are all great things. And it's interesting because if you read these verses at first glance, you have this temptation to think, man, what a great church. What a mature, vibrant, gifted, gospel-loving church. We're tempted to think that by Paul's attitude in these first nine verses. And I'm not sure if your Bible is sectioned on this way, but if you look at your Bibles, what you'll see right after verse 9, there's a title for the next train of thought, and it reads, Divisions in the Church. Paul spends the first nine verses talking about the wonderful things that he sees in this church, only to jump right into verse 10 with, hey, I'm hearing about these divisions in the church. What are we going to do about that? In fact, here is a high-level overview of what Paul will continue to address in his letter to Corinthians in this entire letter. We will go through all these issues. Chapter 1 and 3, they were creating cliques in the church, and they were being divisive intentionally. So Paul has to rebuke them. Chapter 4, Paul addresses their arrogance and their pride. He rebukes them. Chapter 5 and 6, they were sexually immoral even engaging in incestuous relationships. So he has to address that. Chapter 7, they had cast serious misconceptions about marriage. Chapters 8 and 10, they were taking advantage of their religious freedom and being selfish. Chapter 9, they were criticizing Paul's authority as an apostle. This church, planted by Paul himself, is looking at the person who planted this church and thinking, who are you to plant us? And so Paul has to correct them. Chapter 11, they were abusing the Lord's Supper and using it as a means to divide among social statuses. Chapter 13, they are rebuked for not showing the love of Christ. Chapter 14, they are doubtful 
of the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ, which Paul has to address. In fact, there is an English word that is coined after the Corinthians, and the word is called Corinthianized. And here's the definition, to live like the Corinthians, hence, to lead a life of licentiousness and debauchery. In other words, the Corinthian church was far from the mature, gospel-loving, gifted, God-fearing church that we can see. That we can. How is Paul able to write these words? How can he give thanks for these Corinthians? Especially when he's going to spend the rest of the letter correcting them for the very things that he was thankful for them for. How can that be the posture of Paul's heart? Knowing all the problems, how can he still thank God for them? Paul can genuinely give thanks for the glimmers of grace that he sees in the Corinthian church because he has a divine perspective of the church. That's what Pastor C.J. Mahaney calls it in this book on humility. He says Paul has a divine perspective of the church. He's looking at the church through the gospel and so thus, he can see the glimmers of grace that exist, even in spite of all the deficiencies and flaws. You know, when Tina and I first found out that we were pregnant with our first daughter, Maya, every visit to the doctor, and some of you guys can relate, was so exciting. You were nervous, but you were also filled with so much joy. And the visits that we looked forward to the most was the ones when we knew that we were going to see our baby today, that our doctor was going to let us see our baby via ultrasounds. And I remember one of the visits where our doctor was trying to explain to us what we were supposed to see on the ultrasound. And I remember the words that the doctor said that caused my heart to drop. She said, oh, oh, looks like she has daddy's lips. And she was circling this portion of the ultrasound. And I was looking at it, and it was like a profile view of the baby, she said. And she was circling these things that didn't look like lips. It looked like the baby had taken, you know, two Pringles. You guys used to do that? Where one Pringle goes up and the other one goes down, and you have these protruding, obnoxious lips. And I was so, so, so shocked that my baby looked like an alien. We were thrilled, so excited, so happy, but at the same time also, why does she look like that? Curse my lips. And so we leave the, the office, I drop Tina off at work, and a couple of hours later I receive a text from Tina, and it, go, it went something along the lines like this, where it read, oh my, thank the Lord. My coworkers are saying that we're looking at the picture all wrong. It's not a profile picture. It's a picture where you are looking directly at the baby's face. We were looking at the picture with the wrong perspective. Silly illustration. And yet it shows a principle that we all know to be true. That perspective matters. That the way we look at something can dramatically alter what we are able to see or not able to see. And even here, even in spite of all the dysfunction, in spite of all the sin, all the numerous deficiencies that Paul will address later, Paul is assured of here 
What he is assured of here, what he is looking at the church through here, is through the lens that God had called this church, and God was present in the midst of the Corinthians. That God, despite what it looked like, was still working in the Corinthians. And Paul is able to celebrate, to identify, and to draw attention to not only their flaws, but the glimmers of grace amongst them. Paul sees the Corinthians, as as author David Pryor says it, Paul sees the Corinthian church as it is in Christ before he looks at anything else that is true of the church. He sees them through the lens of the gospel, through the cross of Jesus Christ. The application for us is very simple. Friends, when you think of your spouse or your children or your neighbor, let me just broaden that out for a little bit, maybe because you don't have a neighbor for some reason. You live on an island. When you think of the people who you are sitting next to right now or in the same row as, when you think of the people in your community groups or you think of the people that you are serving alongside of, whoever that might be, From what perspective, through what lens, are you looking at them from? If you could ask yourselves for just a second, what is your natural disposition and bent toward them? When you think of that person, what do you feel naturally coming on in your heart? Is it criticism? Do you find yourself naturally thinking, they're so selfish? They're so prideful. They're so judgmental. My gosh, why does that person never change? Or are you able to see the glimmer of grace in their life? Where you see them as they are. Yes, you're not the best of friends. But man, it is so hard for that person to come to church right now. And yet she's still here. Man, that person has come such a long time way? Are you able to see the areas of growth? Do you see a blemish or do you see grace at work? And my question to you is, what are you more aware of? What Paul is saying about the Corinthian church here is also true of ours, Crossway Community Church. And if Paul can identify and celebrate in the Corinthian church of all churches, glimmers of grace, then surely you and I can Discover and celebrate the glimmers of grace here at Crossway Community Church. In our friends, in our neighbors, in our spouse, and our children, when we look at all of these things through the lens of the gospel, through the work and person of Jesus Christ and the cross. Point number three, and it's our final point today. In these introductory verses, we can see Paul's confidence in the God who sustains. We can learn from Paul's confidence in the God who sustains. Take a look at verses 8 through 9 with me. Who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ? God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I want you to read those verses again. He will sustain you. Paul says, until the end, where you will be presented, Paul says, of the Corinthian church, guiltless, blameless, again, baffling, 
How can Paul express such confidence and certainty about the future of a church whose behavior is anything but guiltless? It is anything but blameless. That God will keep them and sustain them until the end. That they be guiltless. The entire letter, Paul, that you're about to write is filled with evidence that they are guilty, not guiltless. So how can Paul be so confident that this church will be sustained and preserved and be presented as guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ? Knowing the condition of this church, Paul, how can you write this? Well, Paul's confidence is revealed in verse 9, if you can look at it with me. It says, God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Not because you're faithful. Not because I'm faithful, but because God is faithful. If you were there while Paul was writing this letter and you were to ask Paul, Paul, are you really going to say this? Isn't this a lie that you are confident that they will be presented as blameless and guiltless? Are you sure? And he would look at us and say, yes, I am absolutely sure. Because my confidence is not rooted in their faithfulness. My confidence is rooted in the faithfulness of God. You know, there are a few moments where I can point back to, they just stick out. When people ask me, how do you know that Tina was the one? And there are a few moments I can turn back to. And one of the moments I remember, sorry, one of the moments that I remember where I encountered this sort of confidence. I forget the exact context, but the relevant part of the conversation, I I remember. And the conversation involved me telling Tina something along the lines of, I'm sorry for being an idiot. (laughs) I'm sorry I hurt you again. But I think you have to trust me that I will change, that I will come through. Again, the details of that, of what I said, are not clear. I've said it so many times. But here is when things get very clear. Her face, as she turned toward me. Some would call it disgust. Some would call it disbelief. I don't know if there's a word I can use to describe her face. All I know is I felt it in my gut. And I, was, and I remember vividly the confidence in her response. I said, sorry, Tina, again, I'm going to change. I'm sorry, Tina. I said I will change, but this time I really will change. And the confidence in her response, I don't trust you. I trust God that he is going to change you. I trust that God is going to work in you. I trust that the Holy Spirit will change your heart. I don't trust you. And I also know that God is going to change me and work in me. That the Spirit will continue to be active and present in me. And this sort of confidence found in Paul's word for the future of the Corinthian church, called to be saints, set apart, sanctified, to be holy, who Paul had observed the glimmers of grace in their lives, God's presence and his working in their very midst, that Paul could write to them in the midst of all their deficiencies. He can write, he will sustain you 
until the very end. You will be presented as blameless, even in the midst of all your deficiencies, because God is faithful to you. God is faithful to me. God is faithful to us. Friends, saints, children of God, called to be holy, called to love one another, called to build up one another, to see our brothers and sisters through the person and work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And because of that work, you and I can all live our lives firmly, rest assured, understanding that we are in the palms of the Father, of our God, the creator of the universe, the King, and that you and I will be standing one day in his presence, not seen in all our deficiencies, in all our sin, and in all our flaws, but you and I will be presented as blameless and guiltless because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Let me pray and close our time together for us today. Lord, some of us in this room are not quite sure of where we stand. Uh, We've been told again and again and again that it is your son who died on the cross to pay for our sin. And yet we find ourselves, how can we be blameless? How can we be guiltless? And Lord, today we pray for the faith and courage to really hold on tightly to your son and the price that he paid on the cross for us. Fully rest assured, knowing that when you look at us, you do not see us as deficient. You don't see us as sinful people, but you see us as children who are covered by the lamb of your son, or by the, by the blood of the lamb, your son, Jesus Christ. God, help us to hold on to that truth tightly this week. We love you so much. We pray all of this in your son's wonderful name. Amen.